Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Is it possible to improve your working memory? And why is working memory so important for people with DLD? Today we're talking DLD and working memory with Associate Professor Lisa Archibald from Western University, Canada, who is the creator of the DLD Toolbox. Welcome everyone to this month's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I am really excited to be joined by somebody who I've known for quite some time now, which is the lovely Lisa Archibald. Welcome, Lisa. Sean, thanks for having me. I was going to say, we've probably met online, what, 2018? Is that when we started collaborating a bit with Rattled? I think that's probably right. That sound about right? Yeah. So it's been a while now. But Lisa, maybe before I get started, can you tell us a little bit about your connection with DLD? Sure, yes. So um, I'm a speech language pathologist and I, uh, in my clinical practice, I was concerned about um, when children might have more linguistic or memory-based difficulties to their language development or their learning. And that's uh, led me on to my PhD where I really wanted to get interested. I was really interested in these children with um, uh, persistent language difficulties. Um, uh, And then uh, in my faculty position, I had the opportunity to participate with the, in the Catalyse studies um, and where we had the consensus of developmental language disorder. So um, really my research then has really always been about children with developmental language disorder, just have that new term um, for it now. Um, and uh, that has led me in now, uh, you know, really kind of a surprise to me that I'm uh, really sort of heavily involved in advocacy in that area as well. Yeah, so I was going to say, so Lisa's been a part of the Rattled International Committee as long as I have. I feel like we've got a lovely group of people that, you know, we're few but mighty, <laughs> trying right. to help raise awareness of DLD. And I'm also, I, I also am constantly surprised that uh, I fell into this advocacy space, but it's fascinating, isn't it? It really is. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think it, uh, it resonates with people of all, you know, all in all different parts of uh, the work that we do. And so, you know, that that's a really exciting part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've got an interesting space in that you obviously you're living in Canada um, and you have um, French speaking and, in, and English speaking. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about this DLD terminology, but it really was that consensus in English. And then what does it look like? I think it's been fascinating to learn from you and your colleagues and, and families in, in Canada around, well, what does this look like um, when you speak more than one language? We know there's a number of studies being done around the world on terminology. Absolutely. I think uh, the my French Canadian colleagues, I, I, not me so much, but my uh, have been actively working um, in that area. And in Canada, we have um, a number of uh, individuals from Quebec who are French speaking Canadians who have developmental language disorder. So, and probably the most vocal group we have, rep- representatives mm. we have. So, so I think that's really pushing us to not forget that uh, we have to consider this work in 
other languages as well. So that that's been really great. It's been a chat. It's a challenge, but it's so great. Yeah, and I think that um, the more and more we're going through this journey, we're realizing that yeah, we got. It was almost like the consensus was the first step, but there's all of this work to go. Absolutely, I really agree with that. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you've touched on your research already, um, but maybe. You know, you've, it spans quite a number of areas. In fact, you know, some of the work that you've done in the DLD and education, you know, um, uh, sort of space that kind of overlaps with my own has always fascinated me, which is how I, you know, I love reading about the work that you've done. But you've covered a range of areas, including working memory. Uh, and we get asked all the time at the DLD project, you know, what is it about DLD and working memory? And um, I was wondering if you might be able to actually explain in your own words what working memory is and why is it important? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there are so many definitions of working memory. Um, Really, uh, it's got to do with how much you can hold in mind at any one time and sort of be aware of. So um, we have this sense that if, if someone tells you an item, you know, something that to remember, we're holding it in mind, but that's not all we're doing. We're doing other things, right? We're thinking about that item, what we know about that item, what we're connected. We might also be hearing other things in relation to that item from other people or other sources, and that's coming into mind. And we're trying to hold all of that active in mind. And that's really sort of the capacity of working memory. That is what you can hold in mind at any one time. Sometimes we have a sense that um, we can divert our attention just briefly and recover what's in working memory. So you might have a sense sometimes of forgetting something momentarily and being able to think about what it was associated with and recover that thing um, in, your, in your working memory. But other times things just can be totally wiped out of working memory. So you often have this feeling of thinking, oh, I've really got to do that and moving to somewhere else maybe. And then it totally leaving your mind. You can't even remember um, what it was. And uh, that that's the kind of loss that working memory can, can suffer because it's this brief, and attention focused um, uh, a state of mind. So the working piece is referring to that, not just holding in mind, but thinking about that information as well. As well. So we're constantly updating what we're holding in mind, right? So I, I might say something and then I might think of something else I wanna say that's connected to that. So my, my mind is always doing the work that's associated with remembering the items as well. So that's how we get that term working memory. I feel like anybody who knows me knows that I'll constantly, you know, if I be having a conversation with somebody, something else interrupts that conversation. And my first natural response is to say, what was I talking about? You know, that <laughs> momentarily <laughs> lapse of what, what was what was I talking about? Um, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. so, you know, those lapses happen frequently, I imagine, to lots of people. They do. That's right. So, so working memory is an attention driven kind of resource. So if you move your attention away, you will have more trouble holding in mind uh, what you had. And, and that's, that's a natural part of working memory for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about attention in just a moment. Um, but I guess now thinking about this in relation to people with DLD, how might it impact a person with DLD when they might have these verbal learning and memory difficulties? 
Yeah. You know, I wanted to just start out with that little phrase, right? Verbal learning and memory. And I Mm. think that's interesting in the Catalyst studies, right? So if you, Mm. you know, if you look through the list of language components, right? Phonology, semantics, uh, pragmatics, discourse, right? They're they're so familiar to speech language pathologists, even word findings, you know, a part of our our clinical prep and, and practice. Um, and almost when you get to pragmatics, you know, you almost stop looking because in your usually in your list of language components, pragmatics, pragmatics is the last item. Right. <laughs> but up. then we tuck in the bottom in the Catalyst work that verbal learning and memory, um, and that's you know less commonly you know rolls off the tongue of a speech language pathologist as part of the language components, and so I think that's quite interesting and. Um, it's not just working memory. You say, you know, it's not just the, that working memory got tucked in there, but it's this description of verbal learning and memory. Um, and I think that's, you know, re- what's the real difficulty in DLD. That is, um, it's learning and memory related to verbal information. So it comes from the research from working memory. So um, uh, we do have, so working memory in its, you know, pure research is uh, considered more of a domain general resource. So it's something that might have verbal or phonologically sound base, uh, 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 verbal sounds held in mind, or even visual word forms that are held in your sort of verbally based working memory. But also there's part of it that would have visual spatial skills, um, visual spatial information, right? That's held in working memory as well. And what the most consistent findings are for developmental language disorder is difficulties when the information is verbal in nature. Uh, It can connect with visual spatial information, but the the findings there are much less consistent. And it seems that really it's when the verbal load is sneaking in, right? So, and, and that's true for lots of visual spatial materials, right? So when we see things, that are represented in, in space um, or in, in image, we often are putting words to those materials. And so then it becomes a verbal task, right? And so the most consistent finding in the area of working memory for children with DLD is in verbal working memory. So that, that seems to be really where the difficulty is. And we see that in the research on um, that phonological non-word Repetition, which is certainly adds a, a memory load, is a clinical marker for DLD, and we see that in the the word learning studies that suggest that that encoding phase, like that first entry into memory, is when children with DLD um, are having particular difficulty. Mm. Um, so that's that. I think that, that memory piece, right? Then we also have this verbal learning, right? So that's the idea of being a able to move something that you've held in working memory um, into your more long-term memory. And we can, I, we can talk more about that process um, and what that looks like. Um, and that's particularly, you know, th- that long-term learning for children with DLD takes lots of extra practice. Um, and so that's why we're thinking about things like um, dynamic assessment, uh, where we can assess how a child is learning verbal information to help us understand whether they're having particular difficulty with that skill that might indicate a developmental language disorder. Mm. And is it something that we'd see in 
all children with DLD, most children with DLD? You know, do we have those sorts of, um, I guess, studies available to us? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, some of my own work has shown that um, you, we can divide these difficulties a little bit so we can identify children who are having more um, linguistically based difficulties from more memory based difficulties. Um, the problem is that those two things, language and memory, are so very tied together that we may see um, uh, difficulties with holding things in mind, that memory piece, because of the language difficulties, or difficulties with, um, uh, you know, having things in memory because, you, you know, the language skills are weak, right? So we can see both, you know, probably both of those things. So we often see children with developmental language disorder struggling with tasks that involve more memory-based skills or more, more linguistically-based skills. Um, there was another part to that question I think you asked me, but um, it's out of my working memory. I was going to say it's gone out of my working memory. Yeah. Too. <laughs> I, but I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to consider, um, you know, people often ask, well, what causes a DLD? And obviously there's the, the linguistic component and the memory component, but I loved your point that, uh, and I say this all the time when we're doing assessments as clinicians, is that we think that we're assessing language in its purest form with these standardized measures, but really we actually evaluate and measure so much more um, because we integrate and use these skills as a high level of overlap between um, language and so many other areas of cognitive functioning that it's probably naive Absolutely. to think that we're purely identifying one aspect. Yes, that's true. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Verbal language is a really good code system for us, right? It's a really quick uh, way for us to represent information. And uh, kids with DLD will use whatever language skills they have to code information just the way, you know, other kids do. So uh, we're always relying on language to help us think, right? We, and also to help us remember things. And so, um, yeah, when, when those language skills are um, not as easily accessed perhaps as someone with developmental language disorder, then we might see that struggle. And I agree that we have to be um, careful about the way that we're looking at our assessment tasks, right? I think that's why we are often sort of triangulating that data, right? We're trying those language tasks in, uh, in different kinds of contexts and settings to, you know, we have sentence recall and sentence formulation and uh, to try to see whether or not we're seeing those difficulties across tasks. Mm. And I'm going a little bit off script here. We talked about what the difficulties are, but if you were, um, you know, you have a child with DLD or you're working with a child with DLD, what might those difficulties with the verbal learning and memory actually look like? Um, how might they present? I don't know if you could give an example or two. Yeah, 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 thanks. So, yeah, so, um, so this encoding piece, right, seems to be uh, a, a consistently found across studies that um, when I present information to you, uh, a child with DLD will have more trouble faithfully encoding that in memory. So they may not reproduce the phonological string as clearly or, or precisely as a child with developmental language disorder. 
And then once we get the encoding happening, um, then those kids with DLD need many more repetitions for that uh, form to make it into long-term memory um, and to be held there, right? That process of word learning, it's such an interesting process. So, you know, when you're learning a new word, you'll often have the sense of sort of partial word knowledge, right? So one day you might learn a new word and then the next day you might say, oh, what was that word? I remember it started mm. with a certain sound or I remember it had something to do with, right? And then you'll review it again. You'll say, okay, I've really got it now, right? And then another week later, you'll try to get that word and you'll stumble on it again. And it takes really quite some time perhaps to get to the point where that word comes to you with no trouble at all. Um, and so that process uh, can, can, we can see difficulties for children with developmental language disorder in a much more extended fashion, right? So they will recall a word, but the phonological form will be not quite correct, right? So some, maybe some uh, syllables will be not quite in the right spot or maybe not as clear because they've got close to the representation, but not fully represented. Um, and uh, we'll see those kinds of things could be going on for quite some quite some time before um, they can really be reliably recalled. Mm. And then another, you know, another. This is where you know that that's maybe sort of that that memory piece and what we're seeing with um, you know initial encoding. But we also see this sort of back and forth, right? So if if you know words, then that can also help you in word learning or in 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 recalling information, right? So I, I give this example all the time, right? You know, say I'm gonna give you a string of sounds, I'm gonna ask you to remember it. And it's gonna be pretty long, you do the best you can, right? So let's say I say something like, famauchi go noichi, something like that. And I say, can, can you say that? Oh, right, I can probably get that pretty good, right? Yeah. So, okay, well, that's great. So now I'm gonna say, well, here's another one. Right, this is much longer. I want you to try really hard to see if you can remember all of the parts. Are you ready? You know, and it's opportunity. Right. So now, can you remember all those parts? Can you get every syllable in the right position? Right. Mm -hmm. It that feels trivial, right, to remember opportunity because it's a word that you already know, right? And since you have those language skills, you're right ready. You know, the teacher has said opportunity to you, man, you're ready to move on up, on up, right? You know, you, 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 because that's holding that in mind is not hard for you. But for a child with DLD, uh, where that activation to what you know about opportunity, if you don't know that word, then you're still back at trying to remember all the parts of that word and trying to recall what it means and how it's relevant to the current situation. Well past the time the instructions have already been given. And, and I think, you know, what happens in a classroom is there's going to be, a, if you're learning something new, right, in a classroom, there'll be a natural period where there's repetitions of that information, right? So the teacher will, when everyone's trying to learn it in the classroom, that information will be repeated. But once most of the kids in the class know that information, then there'll be slips into referent language, right? Pronoun use, it's and you know, the theirs and thens and uh, things that don't actually repeat the content because that's shared knowledge now, right? Now we don't need to 
restate the word, we can use a shortcut in our language because everybody seems to know it, except for those kids with DLD who still need many more repetitions for them to really get solid on that. So uh, we really want to be thinking about ways to make sure kids with DLD get that access to that repetition of information. I love that example. I think thinking from it from a, that classroom perspective, you know, so often the um, child will, you know, we, we have this all assumed knowledge, but that assumed knowledge grows and changes over time. You move from, you know, first grade through to, you know, 12th grade or, or whatever system you're using in your country, you know, that, <laughs> that you kind of build on this knowledge, but the kids with DLD, you know, if they don't have that language being consolidated simultaneously, it makes it hard, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Right. And so now we see that those language skills then aren't there to support the memory task that's being asked uh, of them. So, yeah, yeah, we see this, uh, you know, that give and take, right? When memory is supporting language and language is supporting memory. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about this already, but um, how might health professionals go about assessing verbal language, uh, verbal learning and memory? Um, and potentially this extends beyond, we're both speech pathologists, but which professionals might be involved in this process? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great question. One I get asked all the time. Who's responsible? Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. And um, so I, you know, when we're thinking about verbal learning and memory, I think speech pathologists have, um, a, you know, can bring that lens, right? They can, they can see, what's happening with the child's language skills and how's that affecting their ability to do memory-based tasks. The, the problem we have is that we don't really have super great tasks um, available to us for assessing um, working memory. Um, and some of the um, tests have changed, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the self has changed it's working memory index. Uh, and so it's not as readily available to us. I miss we think that index. Those, <laughs> yes, I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I do think there were some difficulties with it, right? So I'm, I, in my own mind, I make a distinction between highly automatized routines, right? Like, like counting or the alphabet sort of thing. And, uh, no, and I keep those separate in my mind from working memory. And so, you know, I think it's more problematic when those, those are lumped together. Um, but if we're, so, uh, uh, the, if we're thinking about pure working memory tasks, right, people often come up with the, the digit span forward task, digit span backwards, that's, uh, those subtests are available in the test of integrated language and uh, learning, the TILS. And, they might give you some indication of memory, right? There, the problem is that, you know, we, we just talked a moment ago about triangulating subtests of language so that we can kind of get a picture of language. And then when it comes to working memory, you know, we've just got those one subtests really that really are telling us, uh, you know, getting a little bit at um, the child's memory skills. So, you know, that, that seems kind of weak to me, but the idea um, with those uh, digit span tasks is that the child has, has got familiar material, right? So this is a difference, right? This is a little change uh, in thinking here, right? So we could use non-word repetition, 
right? That's probably the classical, it was initially claimed to be pure uh, uh, working memory or pure short-term memory kinds of tasks, but that's probably not true, right? If I give you a word like, you know, a made up word like, um, I can't think of a single made up word. Snitching is not a made up word, but no. nevertheless, if I add a morphological marker to a non-word that you're familiar with already, you know, when you um, have any part that you recognize as familiar to your language, that helps you, right? So again, it's just, it's hard to separate out the language because we immediately want to code things using our really great language system. So, so that, but you know, that number repetition gives you some information. With digit span, the idea here is that the items should be well overlearned, right? So everybody should know their digits by the time you know their school age kids, uh, you know, you know, by grade one certainly, so that that's familiar material for everybody. And so the oh, the only task is remembering the sequence that they're given, um, and then the backwards digit span. Um, is meant to add that working load, right? I not only have to remember it, but I have to change the order. Mm. I do think those, I know we think of those as sort of short-term memory subtests and working memory subtests. I do think those two subtests are really best thought of as, as together, telling you about immediate memory and kinds of skills. Um, and uh, m m one of the, uh, Students in my lab now, Dr. Teresa Pham has um, talked about the TILS scores around um, digit span forward and backward and how those scores can sometimes um, almost look like they're um, in the opposite direction from what you might expect. So I, I do think that maybe those two subtests are best thought of as both telling you about immediate memory skills. We've also, um, recently been looking at the test, uh, the token test, right? So the token test might be familiar to some of your mature <laughs> listeners, right? Some of the old just <laughs> where we always had the token test in the back of a clinic. And I think it's been much less popular in recent years. Um, but it is one where you give a direction, you know, um, touch the blue circle, then touch the blue circle and the red square. Uh, and the increase in length, right, which should be tied to working memory. And then you have the more linguistic uh, task where you say, if there's a blue circle, touch the red square, which is more of a linguistic task, right? So we've been, we've just uh, published a paper showing that we can separate the token test data into those two factors, more of a length-based, that is a working memory load and more of a linguistic factor, mm -hmm. more of a um, language load. And I think that has some potential. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, um, you know, we're probably not ready to use it on an individual child for, for you know, determining difficulties, but um, I, I think it has some potential. You also mentioned um, our colleagues, uh, you know, most notably our um, educational psychology colleagues who also have tests available to them mm. that are um, examining ver verbal memory. And um, when those tests are available, they may also help to, um, to highlight what, what memory skills are looking like as well. Yeah. Um, again, thinking about the language load of those tasks, right? So that's where I think collaboration is 
you know, really keen, really key because, mm. um, because what we talked about earlier, right? When I have weak language skills, that affects my memory, uh, my ability to hold things in mind. Um, so we, so looking together at, you know, what our, our colleagues in psychology might be finding out about memory and what we know about language can, can maybe help us get to the, to, to an understanding of a child's particular profile. So yeah, I was, I'm, your point exactly is what I was thinking of was how do we sort of fuse these speech pathology and psychology measures and ideas um, together? And, and you and I both know that sometimes that is hard, um, that sometimes you know, yep. pulling that together in perspectives can be tricky, but um, I think really helpful and important because we definitely come at it from slightly different viewpoints, I think. And, I, and you know, speech pathologists being that expert um, in language and linguistics and communication, you know, that adds that element um where sometimes we're thinking of we're assessing something very purely and it's not always quite so clean cut is it absolutely very much agree it sounds like these difficulties with verbal learning and memory they're going to impact people day to day um you know it's something that it's not going to be fleeting um or coming and going are there any sorts of interventions or supports <clears throat> excuse me are there any sorts of interventions or supports we can use to support verbal learning and memory for people with DLD and, and maybe you could perhaps share a little bit of the evidence around those if there are any. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So um, when we became concerned about children's working memory, um, we started to, to look at the possibility of working memory training. And so if you search working memory intervention, you'll probably get lots of hits on working memory training. So the idea here is that if I, if I identify an underlying deficit like working memory difficulties, then if I practice that skill over and over, um, then that will mean that that will then support learning in other areas. And the evidence here is pretty definitive that uh, when you do practice a working memory task, you can get better on that task. And that's about it. <laughs> right? So uh, it's that task or things that are very closely related. And um, we don't see the knock-on effects um, of what we were looking for on other skills benefiting from that working memory training. We call this cognitive distance, right? So if, if we have cognitive distance from the thing that we're practicing, um, then we just we just don't get that that transfer. So things need to be really quite closely related. And I think one of the other big concerns is that kind of working memory training takes a fair bit of time for that child, right? For this really no real benefit. And so if we rather uh, take the tasks that the child actually needs to learn, and we spend that same amount of intervention time on that particular task, we're going to get you know a much bigger bang for our buck there right so and i was possibly being really... a little facetious lisa when yes. i asked the question um, <laughs> because one point that you haven't probably touched on is that some of these programs are really expensive so time consuming yes. and expensive um, and expensive and and parents are being encouraged to do these programs quite frequently so we won't name and shame but i think it's really important that I want our listeners to be discerning consumers because, um, yeah, it, it sounds great, doesn't it, to work on these specific, you know, you know, to work on memory, but that lack of generalisation is a big challenge. 
Absolutely. So uh, there's really no evidence to support the use of the, those drill-based working memory kinds of training programs. In fact, you know what the the best kind of intervention is going to be aimed at functional working memory. So how can I help this child hold information in mind for longer? Um, and that's related to those language skills, right? So that's back to what we were saying, right? If I know more language, then that's gonna support my working memory skills. It's gonna help me to hold information in mind. And then my functional working memory will be better. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be able to hold more things in mind because it's supported by my language skills, right? That's back to that opportunity example that we gave. If I know the word, then the load on my working memory isn't so great. So language intervention, right, is the kind of thing that can help with work improvements in functional working memory skills. It doesn't increase the capacity, right? If I still did a digit span, I might not see any increase in my digit span, but I should be able to see um, in the classroom and day-to-day you know, -day life that that child can use their stronger language skills to support their working memory. And then the other thing is um, some strategies that can be put in place for the child's working memory at, you know, right now, right? So how, you know, what kinds of strategies can we put in place? Uh, again, my, uh, my now colleague, Dr. Pham and I wrote um, an article that summarizes working memory strategies. And I'm happy to provide that link uh, to go with the show notes, uh, Sean. But um, in particular, uh, you know, these are the kinds of, you know, these are kinds of strategies that we are all used to support our memory, right? I mean, we, what would we do without notes to, you know, to write down about our memory? What would we do without our calendar, without our to-do lists, without the cues we leave for ourselves all the time? And so these are successful strategies, um, but they may need to be taught explicitly to individuals with developmental language disorder. And, and what I mean by that is broken down into their steps and taught in their steps and uh, rehearsed and practiced uh, so that they can be used. I think what's important about strategy teaching, right, is the strategy teaching is a load itself, right? So, you know, if I'm trying to remember some content and I'm also trying to get this kid to use a new strategy they've never used before, right, that all might be too much, right? So I need to do the strategy teaching on its own with information that the child finds particularly easy practicing the strategy, getting the strategy good, uh, you know, and strong and well used before I go put it to the test by having it um, also being uh, in, the, in the conditions of an increased load uh, for working memory, brand new information that I haven't heard before, sort of thing, so. Yeah, and I think that it links back to this concept and apologies for anybody who's done some of my workshops because I talk about this a lot in that language is so fleeting. It's, um, you know, speech, the power of communication is amazing because we can communicate very effectively and very quickly. But if you are somebody who has difficulties with learning language, that actually presents its own challenge because 
it is so fleeting that and so efficient that it just disappears. So I talk a lot about how we can make language concrete, um, you know, tangible, whether it's through visuals and gestures and, and written language and all those sorts of things. But um, those sorts of strategies could also help with working memory because it's making it, you know, something that you can then organize, interact with, um, connect with, revisit. I mean, revisit. I, I don't know what I'd do without a calendar. I think that, right. you know, the um, digital calendar of my computer gets more of a workout than absolutely anything else's. Um, <laughs> so lots of, um, I think, things to think about here because lots of people, you know, ask all the time about how to work on a child's working memory. And it sounds like, um, you know, some of those programs don't have that evidence um, around them. But what we do know is working on strategies to support will be really helpful. But of the people that contact me the most, it's often teachers and families. Um, so they're the ones who might be supporting their children, uh, you know, child with DLD. Is there anything that they can do very practically to support verbal learning and memory at school or at home? And I know we've touched a little bit on school, but maybe if you wouldn't mind expanding a little bit further on that, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be careful to be very mindful about new learning, right? So uh, where we might say something um, that's new to a child and expect them to quickly encode it or, or essentially to repeat what I've said to them. Um, but for a child with DLD, I think we want to do that in a very purposeful way. So really helping the child to um, understand the phonology of that sequence, right? What's the sound of the beginning? What's the sound of the end? What's the sound in the middle? Put it all together. It really kind of helped to make that encoding, you know, really as high quality as it can be mm -hmm. and pairing it with the meaning, right? So it's not just sitting out there on its own, but it's paired with meaning, paired with knowledge that you already know, right? So what, how are we going to connect that word to things that the child already knows in the brain. So we want to be really mindful of that initial uh, encoding. Then we want to make sure we have opportunities for reviewing that information. So we want that word to come back. Um, and, and we want to really sort of avoid that, that frustration of, you know, you've been over it a million times and that child still doesn't know it, right? Because, you know, we really just want to allow that child to have opportunities for revisiting that word as much as they need to, right? That's just part of the DLD. So how can we put that in, in place, right? How can we, um, you know, put new words in a book that the child can visit on their own, may have an audio table in the classroom that they can go back over, you know, working with a peer to play a game that involves words that are being, um, uh, you know, being, learned so that there are loads of opportunities that we're consciously planning for that repetition in the classroom so that we are in the home so that we know that is you know we're getting that repetition happening so I think you know those are, are, are a couple of good skills uh, going along with the the sort of encouraging that strategy use just as comes naturally essentially um, for um, supporting memory as we go. Mm, fantastic. And I think um, acknowledging that it takes time. You've said that sort of a few yeah, on a few occasions during the podcast that um, it would feel great if there was a quick fix. 
wouldn't there? You know, we could wave, <laughs> often get asked about, you know, waving a magic wand. <laughs> I wish I had one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, thinking about these um, things, they, they take time and the needs will change between a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old and 20 and 25-year-old and beyond. Um, right. You know, what working memory or, or, or um, learning and memory we need at school might be different to an, a job or what we need in exams and things like that. So, it also comes back to that context in which they're working with as well, doesn't it? For sure, for sure. I think, you know, just beginning to be a good observer of your own word learning um, and the, the process that that goes under, the time that it takes you to learn a new word, a, you know, a, an absolutely new word to the point, right? I find this, you know, with, with um, when I'm learning my students' names in the classroom, you know, by you know, I, I can sometimes get them quite early on, right? But there's a few that I have, you know, it takes me longer. Um, and by the end of the term, I feel like I know them all. And then if they come and see me a month later after class in a different context where I haven't seen them for a while and then they're not in their usual spot in the classroom, right? I might have real difficulty um, recalling their names. And that, you know, that's already like a five month process, right? So I think um, by becoming aware of the word learning process that you experience and imagine then needing to uh, provide those supports really, you know, many, you know, much more frequently, you know, I think that can give a sense of, of the kind of work that's required here for children with DLD. You really just hit a sore spot for me, Lisa, because I'm thinking <laughs> I've worked with my students for the first seven weeks of the semester, and then I've moved and done teaching with another group for the second half, and I've got to come back this week, next week, and work with my uh, uh, the students I had at the first time. I thought, my goodness, I, I knew all their names then. I wonder if I'll remember all of them now. It'll be a good right. test of my own word <laughs> learning next week. Yeah. This is, you know, again, it's a little glimpse, right? A, a name is uh, an unfamiliar phonological string, right? Sometimes it's sometimes it's a phone, you know, some it's fairly familiar. Sometimes people have words that, you know, names that you know well, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're unfamiliar phonological strings and they don't have much attachment in your brain, right? Because you don't have many associations with this new person um, in your life. And so it's really, you're really trying to get that phonological form, the semantic association with the person and get that sort of a new entry in your brain. And uh, that's, you know, that's what loads and loads of words are like for individuals with DLD, because they don't have all of the semantic connections for loads of words, well beyond names that we experience in that context. Yeah. Uh, look, it's, there's so much, I think, um, that we could keep talking about um, because I think it's such a fascinating topic because, and it comes up in discussions all the time, but mm -hmm. it's not all you do. In addition <laughs> to your teaching and your research, you've developed the DLD toolbox, which I was saying before we started recording, I'm, you know, love and, um, you know, recommend all the time, but maybe you could tell our listeners who aren't familiar with it about the toolbox and, and why you started developing it. Okay, great, thank you. So yeah, this is a real, I'm really enjoying uh, that project um, and, and glad that, that people are finding it helpful. Um, so uh, I get lots and lots of questions about DLD from Canadian speech language pathologists and beyond Canada as well. And there is of course a, 
a certain sameness to many questions. Um, and I found through conversations like that, that I, you know, that you get a deeper understanding of the, the question and the issues every time you get asked those questions. And I felt that I could then put together some tools that would really help clinicians um, uh, make those kinds of decisions that they were asking me about. So, you know, the, the, you know, help them in that diagnostic decision process. The questions that they had around the catalyst consensus, right? Because what, what our goal is with the catalyst consensus, of course, is uh, consistency in practice and labeling, right? And if we all are taking away what we read in the catalyst and sort of doing it somewhat differently, applying it somewhat differently, then that's not gonna lead us to the consistency that we're looking for. So the idea of the toolbox was that I would provide, you know, answers to the most common questions that I receive and it would be available internationally and hopefully help us with the consistency. And so what I've done then is I've created these flowcharts and I, I do make, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't say enough that I do send them out to a, a group of um, clinicians and researchers in the draft stage, or I send, uh, I send them to you, Sean, and, and others. And, <laughs> Always happy uh, and, yeah, <laughs> and I get lots of great feedback. I get lots of additions, right? I, you know, I, I, I know people really love the the suggestions for report comments that are in the volume one that oh, you know, really came directly from you. So I uh, want to make sure people are aware of that. So, um, and so I'm trying to make sure that they, they fit across the uh, you know, countries and uh, to the extent that we can achieve that. Um, and then, uh, so I, I, I read those and then I write a blog with all of the the nuances to the discussion that I'm presenting in the flowchart. And so I'm trying to take questions that I hear frequently um, and transpose them into these, these volumes that have a flowchart usually, have, have always had a flowchart and a blog for, for clinicians everywhere in the world to use. That it's very much focused on diagnostic decisions. And I yeah. think that having those flowcharts in particular, um, the co-occurring versus differentiating conditions or what to do when you think that they might be something that might be a differentiating condition, you know, these clinically happen all the time. I was um, sort of jovially saying that um, I love when sitting there and thinking about, you know, do I have any concerns that might be a differentiating condition and what do I go through? I'm like, I know about their hearing. They're really pro-social. Um, I wish I could do some more measures of their cognition, but I, you know, at this point, I'm not overly concerned. Um, you know, let's, let's proceed with this DLD diagnosis because in the past, we've had to exclude everything and DLD isn't mm -hmm. that exclusionary term. And I think it's a really big change for people and that um, differential diagnostic process isn't just a snapshot in time. Um, you know, it can evolve as more information comes to light. Um, and I was, I was saying to this colleague quite, you know, lightheartedly that um, you, you suggest uh, if you have concerns and they're seeing another health professional um, to see if there's a differentiating condition, if it's done in a timely manner um, to hold off and giving that information together, or um, if not, you know, provide a provisional diagnosis. And I said, in the couple of years, however it's been since then, I've never once had it happen simultaneously. <laughs> always, yeah, the, from a service provision, I said, it sounds great, but 
um, our waiting lists and everything are so long. So it, sometimes you do, you give that provisional diagnosis while you're waiting on information, but linking back to your point about the reports, there's an example in there of what you can say where, you know, if, if more information comes to light, then we'd refer to it as a language disorder um, rather than DLD. And actually that process is acceptable and okay. People, you know, feel like we have to be crystal ball gazers or perfect. Um, right. But actually right. having I do, that I, flowchart is helpful for considering. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. And I also think it, so I, I do, I, I agree with you, Sean, that people, they want to know if they're, they're, they're making the right mm. diagnostic decision for the, for now and ever, right? Yeah, it's um, like absolute. And I was like, it's okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, yes, but diagnosis isn't always that way, right? No. We, we make the diagnosis based on the evidence that we have. And mm. if a, more evidence comes to light, then a diagnosis could change and should change, right? Yeah. And I think the provisional diagnosis, right, in, the, in that flowchart also um, provides a great opportunity for, for teams to have that conversation, right? So I've, I've been having focus groups with SLP and ed psychoeducational teams that work together. Um, and then I we can talk about, so, you know, how, wh what happens in those cases? What about the use of a provisional diagnosis? And they can kind of come to a decision about the way that they um, go about that. So, and that's good. I have had amongst those teams, um, one who described some, actually simultaneous assessments so some collaborative assessments mm, that they do that, that seemed pretty unique and yeah, the new uh, uh, sorry sean i was just gonna say the newest the newest volume um actually i was going to go take us in a slightly different way so we'll, maybe i'll wait and see what oh you're no doing. i was just going to say from psychology uh, working with a psychology colleague um a really interesting conversation was we were working simultaneously together i thought we were going to release a, a report and they went through and decided that asd was the most likely label and i just happened to say to them in conversation you know i thought we were doing this um simultaneously had you considered developmental language disorder and they said no what is that so uh, right. how can you differentially <laughs> diagnose something that um, yes, if wasn't you... <laughs> even in the consideration? So I think right. what you're working towards, I think, is incredibly fantastic because, um, you know, speech pathologists often do diagnose DLD in isolation, but working collaboratively with others is, I think, where we're going to get, um, uh, I think that's where we need to go. So sorry. It, that was it what... is. Uh, you know, I, I definitely agree. It's where, we, you know, there is, the, you know, a, a really ideal situation. Of course, you've already mentioned the resource constraints that makes that particularly mm. challenging. You know, I often get asked, you know, about the fact that whatever educational authority um, an individual is working in, that there's a system for identifying kids who need support there and developmental language disorder is not the word that they need to use, right? They need to use some other type of word um, that would get the child the services that they need. Um, you know, and I, and I usually say, well, you know, it would be nice if every educational authority in not only in, a, in our province in Ontario or across Canada, but like throughout the world could all have the same system. But you can see that that's probably impossible, certainly within our lifetimes, right? And so, um, you know, you really have to help uh, walk that boundary, right? So you need to use the words in your system that are going to get the child the service that they need, but you also need to use the words that's going to provide the team with uh, the, the parents, the family members, the educator, the you know, educational team, all of them with the best information that they currently have. Right? And I, I often say, you know, 
now more than any other time in my career, uh, you can now find good quality information about developmental language disorders. So that's really Absolutely. the most useful phrase that families and educators can take away with them to find out about what this is for their particular child. So I did in the most current, the most recent volume of the, um, uh, the, the toolbox is deal with um, learning disability, right? So that that's always uh, seems in schools to be the thing that often is tied to um, service provisions for children um, and talked about how developmental language disorder is linked to specific learning disability um, but might be separate from specific learning disorder, which is another um, medical diagnosis that a child might have. Um, and those two distinctions, specific learning disorder and specific learning disability are rarely made. And so um, wanting to make sure that people begin to see those terms and how they relate, you know, have that in their radar um, because you know, that it, it would suggest to me that we might be, speech language pathologists rather might be as involved in identifying specific learning disability as, as our um, educational psychology colleagues. Mm, absolutely. And I think that that's a step that clinically I've had to take in the last couple of years because, mm. um, you know, often we are making these observations and, you know, some of us do work, I work primarily with school-aged children um, and what was... And this is a conversation that links with one of our previous podcasts with um, Tiffany Hogan, um, which was if we use DLD as a label, that doesn't necessarily mean we get literacy support. But if we use, say, dyslexia or an SLD, specific learning disorder diagnosis, we don't necessarily get language based support. So actually, mm -hmm. labels are really powerful for accessing the right combinations of support. And so in the past 10 years ago, I would have argued vehemently, you know, we don't diagnose uh, dyslexia or SLD with DLD um, because the learning relates to the DLD but actually what mm -hmm. I was doing was meaning that my clients weren't getting supported in every area that they needed so I've really it, it comes back to services service delivery as well but yeah. I really had to really rethink my clinical work and how was I facilitating access um, and support for my for my clients and that's at the end of the day I think we all just want to help yes yeah. absolutely yeah I agree with that so, Lisa, I'm just conscious of the time um, because uh, I'm sure you've got other things to do in your evening, my morning. Um, <laughs> but in your opinion, what would you hope to see in the future for DLD, um, whether it's in Canada or around the world? It might be from a research perspective or in clinical work or service delivery, anything really. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think it's so exciting. I think we're making some really great um strides in this area. So I'm hoping that we'll continue to see um, development of assessment tools um, and, uh, and, and intervention approaches. So that I think that's just about everything. everything. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, that might be, yeah. <laughs> I also think that there's, you know, with this international effort, there's more potential for um, similar studies, similar questions to be looked at internationally across different countries. I think that would be you know, really exciting work to see go forward. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the, you know, biggest privileges of being involved with Rattled is learning how 
um, things work in different parts of the world. You know, I've only done a little bit of travel, um, but I've certainly not lived overseas. And thinking about what happens in different cultures, um, different regions, different countries, whatever, you know, we're looking at, there's that localness, you know, the, the context that we need to think about that by looking at it as an international effort really has opened my eyes to these people with DLD are everywhere and their needs are great, but what are we doing and, and how does that look? And it's been such a fascinating journey. I'm so thankful for that. Agreed very much. It has been absolutely fascinating for sure. Yeah. And we're very excited that this year's theme will be um, growing with DLD. So we'll be talking about DLD a lot across the lifespan. Um, so yeah, lots, lots to talk about. Um Lisa, as we draw to a close, um, my last, well, one of my last questions is at the DLD project, we're really trying to focus on some self-care and finding, you know, uh, time to breathe in our busy day. What do you do to look after yourself? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, I do um, do pretty regular exercise, you know, the, to, to yeah. try to keep myself uh, fit. I do beyond that, I do I was gardening, which I find, um, you know, getting that connection to the earth, you know, is really helpful, really gets your mind in a different space. Um, in recent years, I've taken up rug hooking uh, and I really enjoy going to my monthly rug hooking group where there are women who are very, very talented artists and never talk about speech or communication or speech <laughs> therapy. <laughs> but they, you know, they do just you know, some amazing work. So that, that's been really uh, great to do as well. Oh, wonderful. I was going to say, I've seen pictures of your garden. So you've done, you've got beautiful, uh, um, I was going to say beautiful uh, veggies growing. And um, yeah. I was going to say, possibly the right climate for certain things that I probably wouldn't grow here in Australia. So it's always interesting <laughs> yeah. to see what people grow. I think I couldn't grow that because right. <laughs> it's, it's too hot. Um, right. But um, just to wrap up for today's conversation, what are the key points you'd love our listeners at the Talking DLD podcast to take away from our chat? Yeah, yeah. So I think the, the close link between language and working memory um, and, uh, is important, right? So what, uh, you know, that, that difficulties with memory may, uh, may really be have that language difficulty at its root. So, you know, keep a watch from there. Remember about the intervention pieces uh, for working memory. We're really wanting to support those language skills that will help the functionality that, you know, make the, the functional working memory more effective um, and really that strategy used to support those brief uh, immediate memory kinds of tasks that, that, that require immediate memory tasks. So, so I think those are both important and have a look at the DLD toolbox because, you know, mm -hmm. the consistency in our practice, right. The, uh, uh, will really help us to increase awareness of, uh, of developmental language disorder, which can only benefit those who, who have DLD. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. And I'm so pleased we've been able to share some of your um, knowledge and experience with our listeners. So thank you again. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. Thank you, Dr. Archibald, for that fantastic deep dive into working memory and DLD. Continue to expand your knowledge of DLD by completing our training, including diagnosing DLD with confidence, 
and evidence-based interventions and strategies for children with DLD. These courses and more are now available on demand. Get 10% off our on-demand training by using the discount code DLDSKILLS10 by June 30, 2022. Thank you for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast.